1: Welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the Director of Church Society and I'm joined today by Chris Moore who is a vicar in Hereford Diocese in the rural heartlands of England and also our Regional Director for the South and Southwest. How are you today Chris?
2: Well, I'm fine. Uh, The weather is cloudy now. Um, It was bright and sunny first thing this morning. Now it's cloudy. So I'm now slightly grumpier than I was first thing because all (laughs) of us, uh, all of us who live in England are very much our moods determined by the weather. So I'm sort of fairly overcast at the moment. That's a very English way to begin a podcast.
1: Thank you. Now, um, we are just at the end of uh, a couple of weeks of mourning for Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, and uh, the nation has been mourning uh, and remembering her life and celebrating the accession of a new king, uh, or at least marking that in various ways. We've had a number of church services, national church services broadcast live on the BBC and so on. Uh, And uh, those things have been quite interesting theologically. And it wasn't always the time to comment on uh, the theology of, of what was going on Uh, at the time and some of the um, how can I put it less good theological things that have been going on Um, but after the period of mourning it might be time for us to reflect on those to think back look Mm. back and see what we can uh, learn from what's happened so Chris I wonder if you'd like to start tell us about how death has been portrayed in these last couple of weeks How, how have you noticed that
2: being talked about Well, it's interesting, really. I mean, you find generally in funerals uh, in the parish level, certainly, that death... I mean, you can't avoid the fact of death because there's a coffin in front of you. But we often like to try and not talk about it too much. And yet, for Christianity, death is really when when the rubber hits the road. I mean, your death and my death is the final proof of the pudding. Was our hope in vain or was it not? So, in a sense, I think locally... We had a bit of an engagement. It's fair to say that we didn't have many people coming into the church uh, building. We didn't have too many non-church goers engaging on the Sunday following the death. We had a few more at the memorial service which we held on the eve of the state funeral. So mm. not huge engagement, but I think by and large, there was an understandable desire to celebrate the life of the queen. To mark the momentous change that it is, you know, the first change in monarch for for decades, but there wasn't an awful lot said about the fact of death and what happens now to uh, what the prayer book would call our our sister Elizabeth. Yes, so she is in heaven now
1: with Christ, which is better by far. Awaiting casting down her golden crown around yes, around the grassy well, sea. Right. Yes, wasn't that wonderful? Yeah. Um, uh, and she, she is there and she's awaiting the resurrection of the body. The, in When Christ returns, um, we will all be re-clothed um, in order to face the final judgments of God and then have our eternal destiny uh, either in heaven or in hell to be decided by Christ when the books are opened. There wasn't a lot of that in the last couple of weeks, talking about the separation of body and soul and the. Um, immortality yeah. of the soul um, and that she has gone to heaven not because she's a great queen or because of all the good things she's done but only by grace alone through faith alone
2: in Christ alone it would have been good to have more of that um, Yeah, think? I think that's true though I think it's also fair to say that within the liturgy um, particularly the more prayer book focused liturgy of mm. the, the service at Windsor Castle uh, the the committal there there was an awful lot of Christian content there. And, uh, and once again, it, it just demonstrates that we can really lean into our uh, traditional liturgies in the Church of England and also our traditional hymns as well, which are, are, are full of that sort of hope as well, to give us material or things to say into Ooh. funeral services. But no, I think it's very true that when it came to the, the commentary uh, that was going on, there wasn't an awful lot of um, Christian understanding Expressed there, but then I suppose why would we expect anything different? Yes, I think. Um, <laughs> one thing we
1: did get in Justin Welby's sermon, um, at the funeral service was a clear proclamation about Christ, about mm. his resurrection. He was very clear, I think, that, um, if we also have faith in Christ, then we can enjoy a resurrection, um, as she will, and that was that was really good. I thought, um There were some things I wouldn't have said. I might have done things differently. I know a number of us would. But in those five minutes that Justin Welby had uh, in a very um, carefully scheduled, disciplined service, um, we did get Christ. We did get the resurrection and some other challenge.
2: So that was good. Probably his most watched sermon so i think it's great that uh he probably sort of the, the most watched sermon ever yes. in fact
1: i mean they're saying about four or five billion people may have watched that so it wasn't bad to the have
2: higher, anglicanism
1: indeed, yes. uh, the, the great liturgy the great hymns um that apparently the queen herself had chosen i think she did really well um theological genius really to present what she presented but we had anglican liturgy on display mm. for the whole world. To see, and most people in the world apparently did watch, uh, at least some of that that service. I was less pleased, I have to say, um, when I was looking at Justin Welby's sermon he preached before the um, the funeral. Uh, he'd preached it the previous week at Canterbury Cathedral after the Queen's death. He was preaching on Luke fifteen, the um, the lost coin. Um, and, okay. Uh, the lost sheep and you know the prodigal son that that chapter in Luke Um, and he did seem to to rather talk about a universalist hope rather than just the Christian hope for those who are in Christ so he said nothing is lost to God no death is truly the end no death is truly the end because we are always called and found despite our wandering, despite being in some dark corner of our own making, despite mortality, danger and death, seeming to have the last word, uh, the shepherd, the woman, in Luke 15, reveal the nature of God, who in divine humility searches for us and comes to us. All that is lost will be found again, as surely as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead and defeated death. It's just that sense of nothing is lost, all that is lost will be found, and I thought, well, that's not quite what those parables are teaching. They're teaching that there is joy in heaven when what was lost is found, but they don't teach that all will be found. Uh, there are other parables that Jesus uh, spoke, taught to us, in which it's very clear that, you know, there are some sheep, but also some goats, Matthew 25. Um and that there is a judgment day to be faced that won't necessarily be merciful judgment for all of us, to pick up on a phrase that uh, the Archbishop used in the funeral service, merciful judgment. So I, I wonder if you had any thoughts on that, a, a hope in universal salvation to come for everybody who dies <laughs> that's sometimes preached at funerals.
2: I think you have the you have the advantage on me. I, I had not read or or heard that particular sermon. But I do think it is fair to say that universalism itself is is pretty broadly held within the Church of England. I I wondered at times whether it's a consequence of ministering at parish level amongst um, an increasingly unbelieving or non-Christian setting, which rather means that you find yourself confronted taking funerals of people who aren't Christians and wondering quite mm. what to say. You don't really want to preach the sermon that says, well, Granny's in hell, but you needn't be. That might be seen no. as a touch partially insensitive. And well, that's not the way to put it, is it? Of course. <laughs> there are probably nicer ways.
0: But there's I think a time it's... and a place.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it always. But I think there is that temptation always to go down the universalist route, whether you do it um by commission or omission, by the things you don't say as much as you, you might say. And and I think that's increasingly sharp at, at parish level uh, because you are dealing much more so with, with uh, the funerals of people who profess no faith at all. I also think it's a way of comforting ourselves in the Church of England as we find that our numbers continue to fall. And it, it's a way of kind of saying to ourselves, but it doesn't really matter much because everybody's going to get there anyway. I don't mm. know whether that plays in, but I'm mm. certainly I I do at times wonder whether actually our universalism is a rather deeper issue than the various issues that are arising around LLF and um, and the things with sexuality that that's important. But universalism is much more fundamental and is not being addressed uh, in the way that we do ministry. It rather takes the edge off mission if none of it really matters. It anyway. does. It really does. And actually, it's very un-Anglican. So
1: um, I've got my prayer book here and I look at the back of my prayer book at the, <laughs> the articles of religion. And <clears throat> um, we're told that we only obtain eternal salvation by the name of Christ. Um, and it's not that people just have to live a good life according to whatever light they've received or whatever um, whatever religion they, they like to, uh, to follow. Um, that is actually the only place, <laughs> I think where there's an Anglican anathema. Uh, so it actually says you're you're to be accursed um, if, you, if you preach this kind of universalism uh, that everyone will be, will be saved as long as they've you know, framed their life according to whatever law or light of nature that they like to follow. So it's interesting that that, that was preached then in Canterbury Cathedral, but when Justin Welby had before him John 14, verse 6, uh, from the, the reading that we had, and wasn't that amazing, to hear John fourteen six, and 1 Corinthians 15. Read Great. Resurrection hope in Christ alone, who is the only way to the Father. When that's before um, the archbishop, he then preached a sermon, which I think was much clearer on those points. So Yeah.
2: Um, I just think just going back to
1: university,
2: them as well. I mean, I've certainly heard it put by, by colleague, clergy colleagues of mine in various deaneries that... It's not that we're simply saying that those who live good lives go to heaven, but that everybody goes to heaven, regardless. I had this conversation with mm. uh, with somebody once, again a clergy clergy colleague. Um, no, everybody goes to heaven, yeah. to which all I could mm. respond is, Well, you you can share your cloud with Hitler, then I don't think I'll have him on mine. But it was a Yeah. That, it's a very deep set thing, I think. I think that's but right. Was, we we often have bishops on Twitter
1: uh, denouncing, oh, who is it, you know, Vladimir Putin or Um, somebody who's murdered somebody or, um, you know, the people who murdered George, the the guy who murdered George Floyd, for example, they Mm. will be utterly condemned. And there's no sense that that they talk then about, well, of course, the murderer of George Floyd is going to heaven. Um, Vladimir Putin is going to heaven. Um, Of course we don't say that Um, because (laughs) we know when we're confronted with deep injustice like those things, that there is well, a need for for judgment and it won't always be merciful judgment. It will be strict, equitable, absolutely righteous, pure and holy judgment. And that's what we all have to face.
2: Um, thank there goodness is an for justification by faith alone is all I can say. Well, indeed, And I think there is an irony that, that those who often most vigorously and understandably seek social justice... Are also those who will very often um, insist that there is no equivalent kind of justice in heaven, so mm. it doesn't particularly <laughs> matter anymore. Those who are cancelled on Earth will be uncancelled again in in heaven, and it's uh, is an, just an interesting sort of irony in that that we perhaps mm. we seem to have taken justice out of the hands of God and put it into the hands of Twitter instead. Wow, that's an amazing way to see it.
1: <laughs> yes. And we get our righteousness from Twitter, don't we? From the number of likes or retweets that we get and the number of followers we have, that demonstrates mm-hmm. our righteousness. Uh, we can virtue signal um, and, and gain righteousness and great standing with people. But actually all this will count for nothing before God on the last day.
0: Christian leadership has rightly come under scrutiny in recent times. The Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference 2023 seeks to take stock of that and reflect on some pertinent questions that arise from the Bible, from theology and from the world today. What does it mean to lord it over people like the rulers of the Gentiles? Who is there who can tell you to do something you don't want to do? What needs to change in our leadership models? Leadership Reset, From Scripture to Theology to Ministry. The 2023 Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference will be taking place from the 30th of January to the 1st of February at the Hayes Conference Centre in Swanwick. This conference is suitable for all in church leadership, clergy or lay, The distinctive of the Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference is that we actually confer. It is a forum for debate, sharing ideas and encouraging one another in ministry. We hope that this will be a time of genuine spiritual and physical refreshment. Please join us in January, 2023 for the Fellowship of Word and Spirit Conference, Leadership Reset.
1: One other thing I think about some of the services we had is that a lot of what we heard was in old fashioned language, wasn't it? So we had a lot of mm. these and thys and nows and uh, smiteth and uh, other um, strange endings to our verbs and so on. Um, and I, I think Uh, Liz trusted very well the Prime Minister to uh, to struggle through and Baroness Scotland in the funeral service through some of the quite archaic um, King James version English that we we had. I can see why that might give a sort of air of solemnity and ancient uh, resonance to such an occasion but I think I would have preferred it if we'd had a modern version of the Bible, just as Justin Welby didn't preach in 17th century English, why couldn't hmm. we have had the Bible read in 21st century English? What, what do you make of that?
2: I think there's something in that. I think there. I mean, I am a great lover and user of, of the prayer book, and certainly my parishes, two of them are very much prayer book parishes. Um, but I think when it comes to... I Well, I, I think, put it this way, I often find the King James Version harder or translation harder to get my head around than I do the Book of Common Prayer, whether that's just Mm. because I'm more familiar with the Book of Common Mm. Prayer, or whether it's language patterns have endured because it's been much more said throughout the centuries, I don't know. But I think when it comes to the reading of scripture, you really do want that to be clear, as clear as you Mm. can. I mean, you want it to be a mixture of um, faithful in its translation and clear in its translation, and sometimes don't. Those aren't easy to put together, but I do think we have a, a duty to try and uh, have the gospel read as clearly, or the scriptures read rather, as clearly as we possibly can. Again, I mean, the, the the Book of Common Prayer itself in the Articles of Religion at the back
1: does say that worship should be in a language understanding of the people. Uh, it mm-hmm. needs to be in a language that people can actually grasp, not in Latin. That's what we got rid of at the Reformation, so we could actually worship, um, hear God speak, and respond to Him in prayer in our own heart language. I think we 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 should put that into practice um, um, in such services. I hope that perhaps um, in future services with um, under our, our new King, uh, long may He reign, that uh, such things might be uh, brought in. Um, I do like the old language. I mean, it's lovely, but uh, it's meant to communicate something. And especially if we're considering the audience we're speaking to, four or five billion people perhaps watching that service. I doubt that they all had English as their first language. Many would have had Indeed. some sort of English and therefore it would have been good if it was spoken in an English that they could understand and I doubt that anybody around the world is learning English as a second language by um, reciting the King James version of the Bible. So it would have been kinder I think to the, to the congregation of four billion and probably to most of the congregation who are assembled there in Westminster Abbey to have had it in a, in a more modern translation but there we are perhaps I'm in danger of becoming a grumpy old man um, as you are Indeed. too Chris. Well, I'm two years older than you, so I'm two years more grumpy. (laughs) No, I think there's another thing which I wanted to bring up, which is that words do matter. So we had lots of great words, you know, the words about the gospel of resurrection, the liturgy, the words there, uh, the words that were spoken. Um, Words do matter. And so I was somewhat annoyed I've got to confess, during the um, accession service, the accession council, I mean, um, Mm -hmm. when His Majesty the King was proclaimed as the new king by uh, the Privy Council, lots of people came in and signed things and there was an official proclamation. And that was all great. And uh, the king took an oath during that service to um, defend the Protestant constitution of Scotland, that he would be a Protestant king. Uh, and he said, I think the day before, in his um, wonderful uh, first speech as king to the nation, that he um, was brought up as an Anglican and uh, lived and was nurtured in that faith and would continue that. Um, those are good things. And then, while he was um, <laughs> while he was proclaiming this in his accession council, uh, the BBC had Vernon Bogdener, who is a political constitutional. Um, scholar, uh, knows his stuff and is is often a very good commentator on these things. But um, he's from the New College of the Humanities, which is known for people like Peter Singer, uh, the terrible ethicist with all sorts of um, horrendous ideas, and Richard Dawkins, of course famously very atheistic place, while Vernon Bogdanoff from the New College of the Humanities said all of these words about the church and about Protestantism and so on were, and I quote, Purely of symbolic significance. They were without legal significance. They are mainly traditional. So nobody nobody should be offended by any of this. And I thought, well, I'm offended. <laughs> I'm offended that you're saying that. Um, that you're saying that we, we shouldn't take any notice of what was said at that accession council in these very symbolic... Um, um, but meaningful legal ceremonies. So words do mean something. Oaths, especially, mean something. So an official oath taken by the king before the nation—that means something. Um, if if words and oaths don't matter, then civilization
2: crumbles, doesn't it, Chris? Well, yes. I think it's hard to sort of yeah know where you stand if you can make words either mean what you want or you don't mean what you say. I'm, mm. I'm As you were saying all of that, I was, again, um, my mind went to various um, sort of sessions in vestries after the ends of licensing services where I've been, where there's been chuckling over, well, which bit did you cross your fingers in when you had to swear the oaths as yes. you do, you know, yes. um, at your licensed service. And and you know, I, I get a little bit uncomfortable with that because I, I sort of feel I want people to, trust what I say Mm. and and know that what I say I mean. Um, Now, I do think words do mean something. And I think it's um, no mistake that one of, we have obviously the revelation of, of God within within all of creation but we also have the special reservation uh re- oh, i can get the words out revelation revelation uh, is <laughs> is verbal it is a verbal uh it is written to us it is done through mm. words and jesus is himself obviously the word so i think no, we, we would want to try and say that things do mean things um certainly that kind of relativism uh, doesn't seem to wash with hmrc you know, when I say my income, might say that figure, but by that I mean it's actually only half, so I'm only going to pay half the tax. We seem yes. to have absolute um, truth and absolute things with numbers in that way. Well, perhaps we should treat words in a similar pattern. Is your tax return purely symbolic without legal significance, Chris? Uh, absolutely, yes. And I've, <laughs> I've crossed my fingers at certain bits of it. It doesn't really mean what yeah. I say, yes.
1: I mean, people would soon complain, wouldn't they, um, if that was the case? I mean, during the week when um, we had a brand new prime minister and a brand new monarch. Uh, In our church we had a brand new vicar so we also had the institution service for our new vicar and uh, in that service um, it was rather nice actually the vicar got to declare his allegiance to King Charles III Um, and he also gave his uh, allegiance, his loyalty to the inheritance of faith that we have received in the Church of England um, in the 39 Articles, the Book of Common Prayer the ordinal, the scriptures, the teachings of the church fathers as are in accordance with those scriptures and he was saying those things and I was, my heart was strangely warmed to hear him say those things and to affirm those things. If he was to turn around and then start preaching that he didn't actually believe um, in in the Trinity um, and he didn't actually believe in Um, the reformed Protestant faith of the 39 articles in the prayer book that he just declared his allegiance to and said that he believed and wanted to follow as his inspiration and guidance for ministry well what would that do to the church if people were saying those words but not actually following them what would it do to the church Mm. it would do what we see today in the church which is that people say a lot of things um, in official services and oaths, but they don't actually mean them. And that leads up to us to having a whole lot
2: of trouble, does it not? About as much trouble as you'd have if you said to your wife, well, I didn't really mean those words of the wedding vows, I just said them. Yes, wouldn't they were purely word, symbolic.
1: They weren't of any legal significance and they were mainly traditional. So yes. that's that's what we should say to our wives, is it? Is that is that how we want them to hold to their oaths before us in the covenant you of You go first,
2: Lee. You go first and I'll see how
1: uh, it goes. <laughs> I think I'd get a look from Kerry that would say all that needs to be said. Um, also, I think I, will, I was offended by what Vernon Bolden had said because those words, especially, that the king was affirming at that point, are are important. So it wasn't just that, you know, any old words should mean something, but those words particularly that he was telling us not to be offended by, when the king was saying that he would uphold the Protestant constitution of Scotland and the Church of England. That is the whole basis um, of him having the Scottish throne. That's the whole basis for the UK, um, looking back into history. And so I I was offended that I shouldn't be offended by Protestantism, um, and that they felt they had Mm -hmm. to backpedal on
2: everything he was saying. I think there's another factor in this as well, isn't there, that the it's interesting listening to that um, bit of the, the ceremonials that we had that you can very much see or at least imagine the 17th century there present in the room. Uh, you can sort of see, as you say, that the Scottish settlements, uh, we've had bishops' wars up there and all sorts of terrible things leading up to that. You can see the sort of settlement after the Reformation in England that was finally got there and there is a sense that because we hold or held as a nation to a common understanding, that that gave us some security and some basis on which to talk to each other and to relate to each other. Yeah. As we now live in a world where that is taken away or it's assumed that it's said with a nod and a wink, we find that we don't have much in common. Uh, and we say so we do fall out on Twitter. And I'll I mean, I keep going back to Twitter, but on, on various other places because our sort of common deposit as a nation has eroded. and We don't actually have an awful lot in common anymore. And it seemed to me one of the geniuses, or continues to be one of the geniuses of a monarchy, is it does give a continuity, but also a kind of a common ground which we can all relate to. And so if you take that away, and you're left with a sort of relativism, mm. it's, it's not very cohesive for a nation, uh, and it means we end up refighting the battles that we fought in the 16th century and 17th century, um, which, which did get rather bloody. I think we're too yes. polite to kill each other anymore, but we'll, we'll cancel each other instead. I'm not so sure that we're that polite because
1: um, there are often people on the streets can get quite violent. Um, and during some of the recent upheavals of the last few years in parts of the True. Western world, things have got very violent and I think things could turn nasty. Um, uh, by by grace, by God's mercy, they haven't yet, but I, I can foresee that happening. Um, so there, yeah. Well, I don't know if you have any other reflections, Chris, um, before I, I close us in prayer. Um, we had a lovely prayer written by uh, Mark Smith uh, to mark uh, the passing of the Queen
2: and the accession of our new King. But uh, do you have any other observations? I do. I have one one other observation. It, it struck me as I, I, I preached at our sort of um, civic service, sort of quasi civic service last Sunday. I think it was in the evening, and preached on death because, well, that's what we were we were commemorating the death of the Queen, and it just occurred to me that there are these occasions where you can speak directly into very difficult issues for people, such as death, which aren't at funerals and that actually this is a means of preparing people for difficult things they face. I was very aware as I was preaching, we'd had a very tragic death in the village only a few days before. There'd been another tragic death in the village a little bit earlier on in the the year and this is only a small village of a thousand. But here was an opportunity where I could really preach about the reality of death, soul, all these sorts of things, which I tend not to in the normal round of things on a Sunday. And Mm. it did get me thinking, you know, I need to be addressing these things, not waiting for a funeral when really, frankly, it's a bit late. I should be addressing these very partial issues of how we respond to these things as Christians in Mm. the course of the normal thing. And therefore, the death of Queen Elizabeth was, for that very small purpose, a great opportunity, actually, to speak into people's grief in a way that was slightly more oblique. uh, Mm. And therefore, people were sort of readier to hear. That's the only other thing. That's really
1: helpful. And as you say that, I'm reminded that in the first book of homilies, the official Anglican sermons that we have from the 16th century Reformation, um, there is a homily against the fear of death, um, where, in a very pastoral way, the reformers applied the teaching of the gospel to the very real fear that many of us do have about death, physical death, the physical uh, pain and suffering that it causes, but also the the anxiety that it brings. Uh, about the future and about life beyond death. So that the homily on uh, against the fear of death, which you can buy in a nice updated English language version from Church Society, uh, the church well, not Society. Not in 17th org century website. English. <laughs> um, not in 17th century English, but updated, um, just slightly updated. Uh, that That is, you know, that's built into
2: to what Anglicanism is. Mm. Yes, well, it is there. And, mm. and the liturgy carries us in those things as well. What a great joy it is to be able to see some of these services, as you said, our Anglican liturgy there and actually finding out the richness and the depth that there is within it.
1: Yeah, well let me close with a, in a very liturgical way by praying the, the, the collect <laughs> that we've put out to mark the passing of Elizabeth the Faithful, as I like to call her. Um, Elizabeth the Faithful, this is on the Church Society website if anyone wants to use this prayer as well. Let's Let's pray together. O Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, we thank you for our late Sovereign Lady, your servant Elizabeth, our Queen, who is now with you in heaven. Grant in your tender mercy comforts to those who mourn her death, strength and wisdom to our King and blessing upon our whole nation that upheld by your grace and trusting in your goodness, we may know your power to save. We pray all these things in your precious name. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well.